Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. What is good? Good to worship the Lord, isn't it? Man, it's awesome. What a powerful name it is. We, uh, we have a, something a little bit different planned this morning. We're uh, thankful to have uh, John Lieberman with us from Chosen People Ministries. He's going to bring the message this morning. And uh, I always look forward to hearing what God is going to say and do um, through our Jewish, uh, Christian Jewish community. It's awesome. Uh, God is working, doing what he said he would do, keeping his promises. And so we're thankful that he and his wife are here this morning. So would you listen and would you hear what God has to say through John this morning? I'd like to be a little closer to the people. Okay. Usually I get hidden behind these big pulpits, and they're saying, where are you? Are you <laughs> well, um, let me give a little introduction, first of all. Uh, how many know any Jewish person? Oh, you do. Okay. Uh, not a believer? How many know an unsaved Jewish person somewhere, anywhere in the world? Okay, great. Maggie? And the little boy there knows somebody Jewish. Maybe a neighbor. I'm, you'll be the next missionary. Well, I'm a missionary to the Jewish people the last eight years. But ever since I got saved many years ago, I've been called to reach my Jewish people. And I end up reaching more non-Jewish people. They say, you're Jewish and you believe in Jesus? I said, well, yeah. They say, how old is this movement? I said, about 2,000 years old. <laughs> it began with some Jewish people in Jerusalem. And it spread, obviously, to everyone around the world. So I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew. You're going to, Hebrew? Well, you're going to be speaking that language in heaven, right? Okay, so we need to get started now. So it's two words, and Jesus used them right at the end of John's gospel when he uh, said, shalom to you, or peace to you, and breathe the Holy Spirit on him. Shalom alechem. I know that's pretty hard. Okay, we'll get the first word. Shalom, shalom. alechem. Okay, anybody know what that means? It means peace to you. So if you just want to just memorize shalom, is that easier? So everybody say shalom. shalom. Okay. And, uh, and that's a greeting when you say, we're going to Israel soon for the 70th anniversary of Israel being a state. It's just some miracles are happening. Maybe 25 years ago, you'd have maybe, you know, a handful of Jewish people that believe, maybe 50 or 100. Now there's over 10,000 Jewish people out of 7 million, still a small number, that believe in Jesus. And so we believe this is one of the signs before the return of the Lord. Not only would the Jews be back in the land, it's been 70 years since they've been a state, Israel, Jerusalem, 50 years since they've been reunited last year. So these are some amazing things. But Jesus said this gospel should be preached as a witness to all nations or all people groups, and then what? And then the end shall come. So there's a lot of signs by getting the gospel out. So I'm glad you're all missionaries with me. You say, I'm not a missionary. Well, we learned about giving shoes to kids who are needy, reaching out to your neighbors, doing service projects, sharing the gospel, wherever. We're all on a mission. It's just my mission is to reach my Jewish people. So we're going to try and see, can I just advance the slide and it's going to do that automatically? No. Oh, it is. Okay, great. Okay. Um, our ministry, uh, called Chosen People Ministry, started 125 years ago. I'm not the founder. I know I'm older, but <laughs> it started by a rabbi, and, uh, and he had a vision. And I'll tell you a little bit how he got saved, and then I'll give my own personal testimony. But we're in 12 countries covering about 96% of the world's population. So every area where there's Jewish people, and there are Jewish people who live in Muncie. It's not little Israel. There's about maybe 12,000 Jewish people and several thousand Russian-speaking Jews who have immigrated and come to Indianapolis, and we've got material and we're reaching out to them. But uh, the ministry began, uh, and let me just tell you another thing we're going to be doing. Uh, every summer, after we get back from Israel, we take a mission trip to New York, and some of you are willing to join us, if you're willing to join us sometime. 
We spend a week on the streets of New York City, and it's a lot of fun. Go to Times Square, go to Brooklyn, go all over, and we share the gospel. We set up book tables so you can see some of these people. There's Tammy and me at the bottom right, and uh, we just go out through New York City and have a, have a great time. But we depend upon Gentile volunteers who've never done a mission trip like this before. They say, I don't know anything about Jewish people. You know how to love people? You know how to smile? You know how to hand out a track? Just tell them that Jesus loves them? They've never heard that before. So that'll be a great thing. Um, now, where are the Jewish people worldwide? Well, in all these areas. Well, about 85% of the Jewish people live in the United States and Israel. And uh, in New York alone, we've got 3 million Jewish people. So that's like a country reaching them. So that's where our main center is. And in Brooklyn, where we're going to be staying, there's 700,000 Jewish people. And probably about 1% have been reached. Can you imagine that? It's an unreached people group. When you think of somebody in some tribe in Africa or in Papua New Guinea or wherever you support missionaries, you say, wow, they've never heard the gospel. Actually, Africa is being more reached with the gospel than probably Europe right now. Europe is a very dark place, very difficult place. But in Israel, it's not against the law to preach the gospel. People say, isn't it against the law? To evangelize children, it is, because they're very protective of the children. But you can share the gospel with adults. They may not like it. You may get some persecution. But there is freedom to share. But still, only about 1% are reached. So we're trying to reach the Jewish people wherever they are. Well, anyway, let me tell you about the rabbi's story. You know, how many ministries do you know? This church is how many, 100 years old? Something like that? And you've got a new building. And a lot of churches, especially in the city, they get old, people get older, and it, they retire out, and it ends. But I think there's, much, there's life here. Do you sense that life here this morning? I think God wants to do great things here in uh, First Church of Nazarene in Muncie here, reaching not only just Muncie, but around. But anyway, this rabbi had some tragedy as a kid. When he was seven years old, both his parents died. So there he was, an orphan with his sister, and he cried out to God in a very religious family. You wonder, gee, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Religious people have accidents, things that happen. How many people dedicate to the Lord? And they weren't believers, but they were really dedicated to serve God the best of the way they knew. And, uh, and eventually he became a pretty famous rabbi in his town in Hungary. Uh, wasn't Europe back then, but it was a, a lot of political upheaval. Jewish people were forced into ghettos. And in the ghettos, they were confined, sometimes walled off. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. Jews were persecuted, denied jobs. Sometimes they were beat up, synagogues burned down. And so Jews lived in total isolation from Christians. So how was this man ever going to find the Messiah? Well, after he got married, within a year, his father-in-law died. He cried out to God again. And someone told him that the answer is the Messiah. Now, that might have been a believer. It was a Jewish man who told him that. And there was this belief that somewhere in the world, the Messiah might be living. And this man said, why don't you go to America and find the Messiah? So, isn't that something? He's coming to America to find the Messiah. Well, a lot of people are trying to find new life and find the Messiah. So what happened was he left his four uh, children and his wife and said, I'll come back for you. And uh, he had been reading in Daniel. Anybody know Daniel's prophecy? It says that the Messiah is going to be cut off and died. Read that, Daniel 9, verses 24 and following. And then it says that the people of the prince, meaning in that time it would be the Romans that would come, would destroy the city, destroy the temple, and then the Messiah had to come before that time. Well, that happened in 70 A.D., the Messiah came, Jesus came, what, about 30 A.D., 33 A.D., died. You know, nobody knows exactly to try and figure it out. But it was before the temple was destroyed. And this rabbi said, you know what? The rabbis have been wrong. My writings have been wrong. The Messiah, I wonder if he came and we missed him. But anyway, he comes to Messiah. He's on the lower east side of New York City. And uh, I'll explain this picture. This is in the late 1800s. And is walking by a storefront church, and it was actually a pretty big-sized church, about six, eight hundred people in, and he goes, he sees a meeting written in Hebrew that says, meeting for the Jews, 
So he just arrived in New York City, thought, that's for me. He was dressed in his black garb, beard, walks in, and he's amazed. He sees Jewish people, but he sees them seated together. You know, men and women in a very orthodox synagogue sit separately. The men would be on one side and the women on the other, and there'd be a big curtain so you wouldn't get distracted. Okay, that's not a bad idea, but, you know, most people today are, I want to worship next to my wife or with my family and so on. So, but he was amazed, and the man didn't have a yarmulke on. He was a Jewish preacher. Well, he went and talked to the preacher, and the preacher gave him a New Testament. He read it for the very first time, and he accepted Jesus as the Messiah. That was 125 years ago. Well, actually, about 124 years ago, the mission started. So 126 years ago, he actually accepted Jesus. He personally led 1,000 Jewish people to the Lord, which is amazing. And his son took over and took it around the world. Now, you see that arrow back there? That's an actual tenement that still exists today. And when we take our cultural tour in New York City with the volunteers, we always go to this walk-up tenement uh, tenement housing, three stories, and they tell about the actual families who live there. It's sort of amazing. You feel like you walk back in time. And this is what New York City looked like, just teeming with people all over. And my grandfather came there, the Liebermans, about the same time. And I always wonder if he ever heard the gospel because no one in my family has become a believer. No aunts, uncles, cousins. I have a brother and sister. But Tammy did pray with my mom hours before she passed away and she nodded that she wanted Jesus. When always you say, no, no, I'm happy for you, I don't want this. So never give up on somebody because my Jewish mom who didn't believe in life after death, didn't believe in God, accepted uh, the Lord. But nobody else in my family did, my dad, and it's sort of sad. But anyway, let me tell you what it's like to be a reformed Jew and go to a transformed Jew. Anybody understand anything about the denominations? Reformed and we know what reformed school is. <laughs> when you get in trouble, you get sent away to a place and they, they take care of you. Um, but before I get right into that, I wanted to mention a couple things. I've got a brochure there that uh, tells about our ministry, so I don't have to take too much time, and how uh, I got involved with the ministry, my wife and I, our children, grandchildren. And then I've got a, a famous uh, DVD, famous person, and it's free. And you can have that. It's called Chutzpah. You're Jewish and you believe what? <laughs> That's what my Jewish people say. Wait a minute. You're Jewish. You grew up in a Jewish home and you believe that Jesus, Jesus of the Gentiles, is our Jewish Messiah? How can that be? Um, anyway, it's my testimony. But it's free, free for you. I've got in the back called chutzpah, which is another Hebrew word which means nerve. Have you ever said to somebody, you got a lot of nerve. I can't believe you said that. You know? So it's nerve, it's gall, it's like you can't believe that someone would actually do that. And so that's the shock when they have uh, a knowledge that I became a believer. And we have some, uh, you want to hand those out? Okay, Tammy's going to hand out. A lot of people like to keep updated on what we're doing in Jewish ministry. We'll be in Israel, we're going to be in New York, and it's exciting things in evangelism. Uh, we're having our first major outreach coming uh, it should be, yeah, November 9th in Indianapolis. We're going to rent out a catering place, the nicest event place, and invite a concert pianist who was an entertainer, Jewish guy in New York. He's from Cleveland, and he's going to share the gospel and play. Anybody know Michael W. Smith? Okay. I describe him as the Jewish Michael W. Smith with some Jewish humor. So he entertains, he shares his testimony. He's a great, fantastic Marty Getz, G-O-E-T-Z. You can find it at martygets.com. Anyway, um, let me tell you a little bit about the Jewish people because you might say, gee, if I don't know them, I don't know what they believe. Tammy, growing up in Fort Wayne, said, I thought all Jewish people believe in God. Well, <laughs> I know many Jewish people, one out of five claim there is no religion. Can you imagine that? They grew up Jewish and they go, I'm nothing. You heard of the nuns today? I mean, not the nuns that are Catholic, but the, the one people who call themselves nuns like, I'm nothing. You're really nothing? I bet if you talk to them, you'd find out something that they believe, which is some crazy beliefs. Two out of three don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. You would think being Jewish has to do with God. And uh, then uh, six out of ten intermarry. 
It used to be that Jews, if you intermarried, you were kicked out of the family. I had a great uncle, and I didn't know anything about him because my family never talked about him. My mom's you know, uncle, he married a non-Jewish, I think, a woman. Of course, he got in trouble, too, and they didn't, he sort of shamed the family, never talked about him. Years later, I met him, uh, met the family, his children and cousins and so on. But uh, today, six out of 10 intermarry, four out of 10 of the children are not being raised Jewish. That means the Jewish people that you meet at the university, if you're a student, or in the neighborhood, or in business, a lot of the Jewish people, they're, they're searching for their identity. But 70% support Israel. So if you want to reach out to Jewish people, you say, oh, I'm against Israel, I'm against what they're doing, then you've lost your witness to them because even though they're not religious, they uh, believe in Israel. Now, what can you believe today and still be Jewish? Have you ever heard of the Boo Jew or the Jew Boo? It's a Jewish guy who's a Buddhist, which is basically being an atheist. You believe in nothing, almost. So I say boo-hoo because they don't really have much of a belief. You can be atheist and be Jewish. You can be very liberal. You can be very religious. But what happens when you're the Jew for Jesus? You're, you were in the community, but now you're pushed out. And so not only have you been persecuted by Gentiles in history, but now your own Jewish people reject you. And who likes to be rejected by their family? No. And maybe some of you have had hard times trying to share with your family. They think you're a holy roller or you're crazy or whatever. But anyway, this is where my uh, family uh, came from. That's where my grandfather landed. And that's for what it's worth. This is my Orthodox Jewish family on my dad's side in Connecticut. And then he came to Indianapolis and met a very pretty, young, secular Jewish woman who didn't believe in God. He was raised to believe in God. And so... Uh, how many know about Jewish mothers? They're very, I don't want to say, controlling or whatever, very dominant. And so my dad gave up his background and raised us as very liberal reformed Jews. And this is an old picture of like 35 years old. Um, that's my dad in the front, my sister, my brother, none of them believers, my aunt, cousins, niece. So it, it's pretty sad. I shared the gospel with them. But to break through sometimes is a very difficult time. Now, we have in our, uh, what we call confirmation, not like the Lutherans or Catholics, but to me it meant I don't have to go to Sunday school anymore. After you finish your freshman year, you're done. I say, great, I can go play football. Of course, I wasn't a great football player, but I can at least you know, play with my friends. I On Saturday, I don't have to go to synagogue anymore. But... Uh, my mom said, you look so serious at that commencement. And so maybe God was dealing in my heart. I sort of believed there was a God out there, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But after the time I was 14, I never thought about God again until I was about 21. Uh, now, I was only five feet tall, weighed 92 pounds, I went to high school. So I wasn't going to play football. We didn't have soccer. We didn't have lacrosse. So I played a little tennis. But somebody said, go out for wrestling. And I said, the only thing I know is about professional wrestling. You take a chair and hit somebody over the head. You mean that's a sport? He said, no, no, there's an actual sport called wrestling. So for a little kid, it, uh, I became you know, pretty good at it and felt self-confident, built my uh, ego up a little bit. But one day I went to a Catholic high school and I was in the back gym and uh, I saw this picture. It scared me. You know, like the vampires, Vampires, you know, you have the cross in the movies, you know, holding back the vampire. I don't know why vampires are scared of the cross, but I guess, you know, in the movies they are. Well, I saw this picture of Jesus, and it had a heart coming out of it, and it was bleeding, and it freaked me out. I go, what in the world is that? You know, up until that time, I had never thought of Jesus. Jesus, to me, was like a Catholic priest. Um... I thought Christians worshiped three gods. I didn't really think much about it, but as I got older, I began to think, well, Christians believe Jesus is God, but we believe in the invisible, living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, I didn't really believe he existed, but we're supposed to believe in this God that's eternal, but he has no form. And here, Gentiles believe in a Jesus who's a God. Now, how could that be? Again, I thought Jesus is a Catholic priest, and not my Jewish rabbi. Now I know as I read the gospel, what do they say about Jesus? 
rabbi, rabboni, which means teacher. He was a Jewish rabbi. You know, Christmas should be a Jewish holiday. You say, wait a minute, how can Christmas be a Jewish holiday? Well, let's think this through. It's the birth of a Jew named Jesus, right? Took place in a town called Bethlehem, house of bread. That's what it literally means, Bethlehem. The story is told by three Jewish men, and Luke being non-Jewish, historian. Uh, it happened in Israel, and he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. So it sounds pretty Jewish to me, right? I can't convince my Jewish people that Christmas is a, is a Jewish holiday. Okay, I had wrong views of Jesus growing up. Now, Christmas I could figure out because you see the little baby mangers, you know, on the, uh, you know, Christmas time in front of somebody's home. And sometimes, like the house across the street was all lit up. They had Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, they had Santa, and they had everything. So I figured it's about a little baby. But I didn't know what happened to the baby growing up. But Easter really confused me. I thought it was about Easter bunnies and rabbits, and probably a lot of people in the community think the same thing. And then, what was the New Testament? I actually thought the New Testament was a newer version of the Old Testament. I didn't know that. It was four Gospels, Paul's letters, because I had never seen a New Testament until I was 23 years old. So you'll say, well, didn't you believe in the coming of the Messiah? Well, not really. We believe as Jews that we have to go do service projects. So Jewish people are very much into, uh, they were into the, uh, uh, the marches with uh, Martin Luther King. They are very much into social justice. Anytime, the, in fact, many of them were against the war and not understanding why there is war in the world. But they got involved in service projects. And even my mom would take me downtown when kids had polio and we'd deliver them at Christmas time gifts. But the true biblical view, the Jewish view, is that there would be a coming of the Messiah, he would store Israel to prominence, he would defeat Israel's enemies, and bring peace in the world. So my Jewish people tell me, they say, wait a minute, there's no peace in the world today, so the Messiah can't be here. They don't understand two comings of the one Messiah. And at the second coming, it'll be a glorious time. I don't know if it's going to look exactly like that, but that's sort of a neat picture I found uh, on the internet. That's a, a glorious coming, people from all different backgrounds. Now, I went off to Indiana University. Um, remember, I hadn't thought about God for years, graduated from high school, and these are all my Jewish fraternity brothers, and not one of them ever talked about God. We talked about social movements. We talked about bad things that people were doing. We did some of the bad things uh, that we shouldn't have been doing. But uh, it was a, a great group of guys. They were friends. We, you know, it's neat to be a part of a fraternity, but uh, there was nothing spiritual there. And uh, so what does a nice Jewish boy do? He tries to advance the next slide. Okay, okay. Uh, he falls in love with a Catholic girl. I just started, and she was like 4'10". I was like 5'4 by that time, so I felt like a giant, you know, beautiful girl from uh, New York. And the only problem was she was Catholic. And my dad was very upset. In fact, I'm not, I don't want to offend any people from a Catholic background, but I'm just telling you what my dad said. Back then, you ate fish on Friday. Anybody remember that? You're, you're reflecting your age if you do. And he said, you're not interested. He wouldn't even use the word Catholic, fish eater. Now, why was he so angry? When he was growing up, he used to get in fights with the Catholic kids because they'd say, you're a Christ killer. He's probably saying, I didn't kill anybody. I don't even know him. You know, I don't know anything about Jesus. But the Jewish people have been blamed throughout history, and thousands of Jews have been killed, massacred, their synagogues burned because they've been called Christ killers. Everybody put Christ on the cross, right? You put Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ died for you personally. He died for you. So in one way, we all are responsible for the death of Christ because he came to lovingly die for the sins of the world. But uh, so I didn't really care. She was pretty. I figured we'll work out this religion. And one day I gave her a hard time. I said, how can you believe in Jesus and the virgin birth? And she thought, this isn't going to work out. Her parents didn't really like me, so ends up that, what happened? A year and a half later, it ends with a broken heart, and uh, you know, I don't know why we let broken relationships, the woundedness, destroy us, as if it's the only thing in life. But we've all been hurt, we've all been wounded, we all have broken relationships, some with families, some with fathers. 
I was never that close to my dad. He was a very successful businessman in real estate, but never had time for the family. Was gone 24-7. He'd be out of town for a week or so. He'd call my mom and say, oh, I'm in Las Vegas. He wouldn't even tell her that he was gone until he, he left. Um, and and uh, so anyway, he uh, uh, was not a really good father, but he was generous in ways. He reached out to people, but he just didn't have time. So I was wounded by that. Then I had this broken relationship, and I felt the anguish, like the rabbi. That rabbi felt the anguish when he lost his parents at seven. Then his father-in-law dies, and he felt this loneliness. And so I didn't know how to solve that. And uh, so one night in my fraternity, one of my friends asked me the big question. And I ask people this question everywhere. I go, uh, when I'm out to eat, uh, maybe not 100% of the time, but maybe 98% of the time. Eventually, we'll get around to a spiritual discussion with people I meet, and, uh, and I'll ask a question. But he said, John, where do you think you will go when you die? And that's where a lot of my relatives are and the friends of my Jewish community, their bodies, they're at the Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation Cemetery in Westfield, Indiana. And it's just, when I walk through there, because I'll see my parents' grave and my brother. And, uh, and I just see all these lost souls. And I wonder, did anybody share the gospel with them? Well, here's, here's the question. Does your soul survive after the body dies? If so, where does it go? I had no answer. And that's an answer or a question you all have to ask this morning. And maybe you have that assurance, 100%, that if you died tonight, you know where you're going. If you don't know... You need to get that settled because that's for eternity. That's a long time. Well, uh, what do all good kids, searching kids, do in the late 60s when you study about the hippies? Where do they all go? They did not travel to Muncie. They did not travel to Indianapolis. In fact, we left Indiana and we went out where? We go to California because... That's the free life out there, and it's exciting, and the weather's beautiful, and you can discover new things. And who wants to be in plain old Indiana, especially in the summer, uh, which is nice, but going out to California, it's just beautiful. And I, I went to Stanford Summer School, and I had to take a summer school course, and I didn't know one from the other. I was a business major at IU, so I decided to take this neat course in mysticism, which I had no idea what it meant but I had to study the early mystics of Christianity, one of them being George Fox. Now, I don't know what you think of the Quakers, but I think they were pretty spiritual because when they would pray, the presence of God would come on them, and what would they do? They would quake. That's how they got the name Quakers. Now, I don't know what the Shakers did. They must have shook. <laughs> but anyway, I read his journal. At the end of that journal, I reached out to God, and I said, God, you know, there's got to be a God out there somewhere because I was touched by how he suffered for his face, was thrown in prison. And two days later, I'm walking downtown San Francisco, and I meet a woman on a street corner, can you imagine, talking about religion. Downtown Muncie, have you ever seen anybody preach on a street corner? No? They do that in Indianapolis, maybe they don't do that anymore. But uh, there are people who go out and share the gospel, and sometimes they're a little bit obnoxious, and sometimes they're, they're sharing the, the truth in a gentle way. But I thought it was weird. A lady on a street corner talking about religion. I'd never heard that before. But she was so loving that I felt some love touching me. And uh, I went back and said, when I go back, I'm going to find out about spiritual things. I'm going to start seeking. So a friend of mine told me about an occult bookstore, you know, yoga, hypnotism, Christ consciousness, science of mind, whatever all that was. And I fell into a book, uh, started reading about hypnotism, even became a licensed hypnotist. Not that I could really change. I was trying to change my life, trying to become more positive, speak positive. But nothing seemed to work. And that's just a picture. You know, I don't like to show that picture for too long, but I don't have hardly any pictures. We didn't have cameras back then, you know, walking around. Like now, we take pictures all the time, but I found this picture, and these are my five Jewish fraternity brothers. One's a physician, one's an attorney in D.C., one's a tax attorney, um, one's a business school graduate, graduate, and then there's a Jew for Jesus. You know, your parents, your Jewish parents don't say, they always say, my son, the attorney, 
My son, the physician, you can't just be a physician. You've got to be the head of neurology, not just a neurologist. So they don't brag about their son who became a Jew for Jesus or a minister. So, uh, but I have the best calling in life. I know Jesus. It doesn't matter what I am in life. So I graduate from college. I cut my hair. And um, now I wish I had it all back, but I don't. Okay. Um, and uh, my dad said, hey, in my office building, we have a tenant, and he's selling success programs. I said, well, I've been studying positive thinking. And uh, so I began to sell these success programs. And every once in a while, they'd have uh, a scripture out of context. They'd say, and you know, the, the carpenter from the plains of Galilee. I said, what carpenter? I don't know any carpenter. Sounds strange. Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, and knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. And it said, and, uh, and the one from Galilee, and Luke, it says, I didn't know Luke, Matthew, I know Irving, I know Sidney, I know Chaim, you know, Jewish people, but who was Luke? <laughs> I didn't know. But at the end of six months, I failed selling success programs. Now, that is very depressing. Here you're thinking you're going to be successful, and I think I sold a couple of programs, one to my dad's friend who felt sorry for me, and I said, this isn't the answer. So... I turned on TV one day, and uh, um, I'd walked into a convenience store, and I bought this uh, magazine that you, where you get all the good news, not fake news, just the Inquirer. Now, that would be the fake news of that day. But one thing stood out. Billy Graham, who I'd never heard of, said, the end of the world is coming. And that scared me. Can you imagine that? You're young, and you're thinking, the end is coming. Man, I'm just getting started. I don't know what I'm doing in life, but there must be something for me to do. I'm just getting started. And then I turn on TV. And again, I date myself. Remember TVs where you actually had to get up from your, your comfortable chair and turn the channel? Can you believe that? How much work that is? Now we just flipped to, what, 120 channels? And, uh, and so one of the four channels, yes, we had four channels back then, <laughs> landed as I'm flipping landed on Billy Graham, I get the altar call. And he says, young people, I challenge you. You've committed your lives to sex, to drugs, to violence. I challenge you to commit your life to Christ. And uh, I'd experiment in things I shouldn't have in college, and, and uh, I'm glad I have a, a sane mind today because kids were trying everything. And I said, you know, there is something missing. And that's the answer. I said, right there. I said, Christ is the answer. And then I stopped and I go, but who's Christ? <laughs> I felt the conviction. You know, you can feel the conviction from somebody and be in a service. You might not remember what they said, but the conviction, power of the Holy Spirit comes to you, and uh, all of a sudden, you're drawn to the altar or you give your life to Christ. God moves. And so God was moving on me, but I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit's conviction. I didn't even know who Jesus was because Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God or the word about Christ or the Messiah. So somehow, we've got to get the word out to our Jewish people, our Gentile neighbors, people who haven't heard. We assume they know the gospel, but sometimes you need to explain it in a very simple way. Well, soon after that, I had an ear infection, a residual problem from my wrestling days, and the doctor said I need an operation. And being the wimp I am, I go, I'm not going to have an operation. I'm going to go to one of these spiritual places and ask for prayer. And maybe I'll go to a church because I've been studying Christ consciousness, and Billy Graham talked about Christ, but I've never been inside a church before. So I open up the yellow pages, believing and sort of believing that the divine mind would guide me. Now I don't recommend that a way, that's a way to find a church. There are other more intelligent ways to search out what would be a good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. But anyway, it landed on Christian reform. Well, this pastor had gotten involved in a revival and a renewal, and his whole church was being transformed, and they just happened to be Wednesday night, and they just happened to be having a prayer meeting that night. So I wandered into that, and I'm singing songs with them. I don't even know what I'm singing. At the end of it, somebody laid hands on me and prayed, and the power of the Spirit came upon me, and within a couple of days, I was healed. Now, again, no texting, no email. I lost their number, lost contact, and then the devil. Every time you're seeking and you're getting close to God, what happens? There's a test. There's a trial. 
there's a distraction of the enemy. So God can bring bad people into your life right when you're, you're witnessing somebody, and it seems like they're ready, and all of a sudden, what happened? They got taken off with this. It was a girl with this bad guy, and she was seeking the Lord. What happened? What, why is she off with that bad guy? See, there's trials, there's struggles. Your soul is in a battle, and uh, you've got to press on, but if you don't have the fellowship, you get distracted. So I lost contact with them, and, uh, and then I said, I think I'm going to be a psychologist. And everybody goes in psychology to try and figure out their problems, right? So I had lots of problems, so I'm going to try and figure out and be a psychologist. And I'll be more confused after I get done with all the different theories out there. So I went to New York, and I stayed in Greenwich Village and checked out schools, and some Jesus people came to the door. I was staying with some other people who were not believers, and they invited me to a Jesus people coffee house. So here again, here I wander in, and I hear all these testimonies of Jewish people sharing about, not all Jewish, but a couple of Jewish people, and mostly non-Jewish hippies sharing about Jesus, answered prayer, how they were healed, how God blessed them, how they got saved. And I never heard anything like that before. And then they closed the meeting at the end with prayer. And so I thought, I don't know who they're praying to. They were all closed their eyes like that. I kept my eyes open because I didn't know what they were doing. But I know that they believed that they were talking to an unseen presence in the room. Later, obviously, we know the Holy Spirit was there. God was present. Jesus was there. And the Lord was convicting me, and I wanted to talk more. And what happens? A Jewish guy comes into the meeting at the end. He says, hey, there's a party over here. You want to go? And distracted me and got me away. So I'm glad God is a wonderful seeker. You know, you thought you sought God. You know, you, you all have a testimony, I'm sure, many of you. You know, I was broken. I did drugs. I did this. My marriage was in trouble or whatever your situation was. And then I started seeking God. But you know what? It was God seeking you. He's the seeker. He came to seek and save those who were lost. But we call it a search. And so I was basically on a search to know the truth. So where do you go when you're really seeking for truth? You leave everything, and you go up to the mountains of Arizona to a yoga camp. Well, after two weeks of eating this bland food, rice and veggies, I know some of you love rice, maybe there's some vegans here, but to me, it's just so dry and boring. And then trying to cross my legs like a pretzel for two weeks and listen to this guru who looks like he's going to die, some little thin guy from India. I said, this can't be the life. So I was disillusioned, thinking maybe there's no answer to life. So I left there, and I'm camping out in a, um, uh, a lake in northern Arizona. And fortunately, God protected me because I was going to camp out. I didn't know anything about camping. I had a little lean-to. And I was going to go by the lake, and somebody said, oh, I'm glad you didn't go down there because there's a nest of rattlesnakes. So God even protected me. I went to another place, and while I'm walking around, I meet this minister, and I meet this young couple, and I said, what are you? Well, they said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm on a spiritual search. And they said, we're Jesus people. Now, if they said we're Christians, I probably would have been turned off because I'm Jewish. I don't want to become a Christian. And um, they, uh, you know, if they said I'm Baptist or Methodist, definitely if they said I was Catholic, no, no, I know how the Catholics have treated Jewish people. If I join them, they're not going to be happy with me. They won't want me. So he said, how would you like to meet my minister? So I went back and I talked to the minister. And the first thing he said, I don't know why he said this, he said, have you been born again? Now, we all know what that means, but I thought it meant reincarnation. You mean, I got to come back as a toad or an ancient relative? I didn't know, like Nicodemus. What does it mean to be born again, to be transformed, to be saved? And he said, uh, well, you need to get saved. Went over my head. What do you mean saved? Now, I know when I've been in trouble, maybe somebody's looking for me. You know, I got in trouble. I need to be saved out of my problems, but I didn't understand saved from personal sin, saved from hell, saved to be reconciled with God, to have my sins forgiven completely. So he gave me a New Testament, and I'd never seen one. I was 23 the first time, and I took it back to my uh, lean-to. It wasn't much of a campsite. Um, and I opened it up to the Gospel of John, because he probably said, go to the Gospel of John, and my name is John, so I figured, oh, okay, I'll read it. And I started reading about the Father and the Son 
are one. And the Father sent the Son. And I didn't fully understand that. But I, but I wanted to know. And I closed the book. And that night, June 23rd, 1971, the thought came to my mind. They must have been praying up a storm. So this is why I believe in the power of prayer. They were praying up a storm and probably praying, save that Jewish man. Touch him. Deliver him. And I had the thought to call out to Jesus. We sang a song this morning, a praise song about what a wonderful name. Oh, Jesus. What a wonderful name. And I looked up to heaven where heaven might be, and I said, Jesus, I didn't even know the, the four spiritual laws. Five, we have a track, five spiritual laws. Jews must need an extra one because we're so stubborn. But anyway, I didn't know the plan of salvation. I didn't even know about the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, God dealt with me. Paul in the Damascus Road was knocked off. And he heard a voice in Hebrew speak out loud to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And um, so I called out to Jesus. And all of a sudden, it was like a veil taken off my heart and mind. I didn't physically see Jesus, but I knew that I just met Jesus. You can imagine if you have a beautiful painting, a Rembrandt painting, and it's a big canvas on it. And somebody, the uh, one leading the tour at the museum, said, oh, this is one of Rembrandt's greatest pictures. It's beautiful, the texture of the paint. And you're saying, but I don't see it. Will you take the stupid canvas off and let me see it? And so he takes the canvas off, and he beholds the beauty of that painting. And that's what happened to me. I don't know how God does that through the Holy Spirit, the little bit of the word I heard, I knew that Jesus was alive. I knew he was a person. I knew that he knew me. And I knew that he was with me even when I didn't know him. He was with me my whole life. That's how real he was. And I knew that when I died, he would be there. And I felt transformed inside. So the next morning, I went to the campsite. I told them about it. And they said, this is fantastic. We're giving you a newspaper since you're on your way to Denver. We're going to give you a newspaper that will tell you about all these Jesus people coffee houses. I said, I've been to a lot of them, or a couple of them, and I want to find out more. Um, so I ended up uh, going to Denver, Colorado, and there was a big convention at the Denver Hilton, a youth convention, 2,000 people there. And I wandered in there, and the preacher, the first thing I heard when I walked in the meeting, says, God is going to begin to pour out his Holy Spirit upon the Jewish people. I thought I was the only Jew in the world that believed in Jesus. I didn't know about Peter and Paul and the boys. <laughs> that was all Jewish movement. It was all Jewish. But somehow, a lot of Jewish people, when they begin to hear this, you begin to talk to them, they think they're the only Jew in the world that's considering this. And they know that if they believe this, their friends will reject them. They could lose their job if they're in Israel. Their family will reject them. And so they're thinking, why would I do this unless the Lord is dealing with them? And it was there that they talked about the Holy Spirit. I was just trying to figure out the Father and the Son, and now they complicated things by talking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, anyway, somebody prayed for me, and I won't go into everything that happened, but the Holy Spirit came on me in a powerful way. I went back to the apartment where I was staying with a Jewish friend from college, and I said, Arnie, I believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come in me. I've been born again. Well, except the Jesus, but then I got really filled, controlled by the Spirit. And you need to be saved. And his girlfriend was over that night, and he didn't say anything. When she left, he said, I want you out of my apartment right now, tomorrow morning. So now I'm not only the only Jew in the world who believes in Jesus, I'm the homeless Jew who believes in Jesus. I didn't know a soul in Denver. And I prayed that night. I said, God, show me what to do. Show me where to go. I don't know what to do. Do I buy a cross? I've got a Bible. Do I go out and preach on the street? Do I find a church? Had no idea. And so I woke up that next morning, and I was thinking God would think about it all night. No, you pray, and you let God plan something. God knew. Before words on your tongue, Psalm 139 says, I know it. God knows your words. But anyway, he let me think that he was thinking all night, and I got a good night's sleep, woke up, and a thought came into my mind, a strong impression. Now, I've never heard God's voice out loud, but you know when there's been a strong impression that you're to do something. 
And usually, it's an act of love. It's an act of kindness, reaching out, sharing the gospel, calling that person to encourage them, or whatever it may be. But you know, I must do this. And it said, call this couple you met at the conference who said, if you ever need a place to stay, you can live with me. So I've never done that before. That sounds sort of strange, but I was learning to trust in God. I called them up and I said, the college kid who used to with, with us in the summer is gone. You can move in. I said, I'm Jewish. I moved in with them. I said, but I have to understand my identity. They introduced me to a Holocaust survivor who was with this ministry. This is 47 years ago. And uh, shared, uh, I met him and his wife. He had escaped the concentration camp and fled, was in another Soviet prison, got to South America and got saved and met his wife in Israel, came back to Denver, originally from Poland. And uh, so he helped disciple me. Then I realized I hadn't talked to my parents for two weeks. They knew I was on this search. You know, we didn't have, you know, our cell phones or anything to call right away or send a picture. So I said, hey, Mom and Dad, I'm living in Denver, and I'm living with this family. And they're thinking, we don't have any family in Denver. Where are you living? And I said, uh, well, I met this family at this conference, and I found Jesus as Messiah, and Jesus loves you. You're sort of nervous to sharing that. And there's a pause at the end of the line. And then my dad said, well, Rabbi Salzman loves you. So he didn't know what to say. He thought I joined a cult. You know, I wasn't even sure what I was involved in. All I knew is I had to follow Jesus. Eventually uh, went off to seminary and been involved in Jewish ministry ever since then and the last eight years with chosen people ministry. Well, anyway, that's my testimony. I've taken up a lot of time. What I'd like to do is maybe take a couple... How much time do we have for a couple of questions? Till what, 2 o'clock? Okay. Two, yeah. Pastor Mark's at 2 o'clock. Okay, no. Anybody have a question about the Jewish people or, um, you know, my testimony or what the family thought or how to reach Jewish people? No question. You know everything about reaching Jewish people. Okay. So I'm going to release you into, to go into the Jewish community and you can come with us to Israel or New York and you'll be ready to share the gospel. Well, anyway, we're uh, uh, excited about going to Israel and we'll be there July 3rd through the 15th and uh, it's going to be an exciting time. We have Jewish people from all around our ministry coming and as well as 500 total people. So we're going to be leading one of the buses of 40 people which means I'm in charge of making sure and babysitting that 40 people don't get lost and leave them at the Dead Sea. i got to get them back and do a little teaching, and we'll have an Israeli guide, and then we head off to New York. So basically, that's what our ministry's been doing, and I appreciate the time to share here this morning. And uh, I don't think I have enough... Oh, yeah, got to have that picture. That was me, 1972... Actually, I look older than 23 because I got a beard. Where I found that sport coat, I don't know. That was the only sport coat I owned back then. Um, and uh, I'll leave you uh, in closing with one question. And this question was actually asked me, and it's an important question because it has to do with the lost. Are the lost really lost? I mean, somebody who's never heard the gospel, a Hindu in India, somebody in a tribe in Africa, a Buddhist in Thailand, are they really lost? Because this has to do with the question of why missions. And I went to visit a rabbi in Chicago, and I told him, look, I'm a Messianic Jew. I'm not here to preach. I just want to visit your congregation to see what it's like. He got out of the desk, came out in front of me, stared me in the face. I thought he was going to hit me. Came within a foot of my face and said, this is exactly what he said. Are you trying to tell me that of Adolf Eichmann, right before he was hanged, and he was one of the worst henchmen of Hitler, responsible for orchestrating the shipping and the trains of two million Jewish people. He organized it. No, he would later say, I was just doing my job. Is that a cop-out? Just doing my job. I was a military person taking orders. But if he would have cried out, oh God, forgive me of all my sins, that he would have gone to heaven while the six million Jews would have all gone to hell. And he said, 
I want an answer, and if you answer yes, then I want you to get down on your knees and repent. I said, Rabbi, that's a good question. I'm going to get back with you. <laughs> so I researched five of my professors, and they all gave me sort of different approach or an answer or a way of answering it. And I sent it to him. He never contacted me. So he wasn't really interested in the answer. I sent him something 15 years later, 20 years later, and then I said, I've done what I can to reach out to this rabbi. But we found out from the research, the president of this ministry found out that 250,000 Jewish people during the Holocaust became believers in Jesus. Now, maybe some of them converted because they were hid by Catholics or hidden in the convent and later went back to their Jewish families. But how could, that, how could we not know about that till recently? Well, all the people that were involved in Jewish missions in Europe who were Jewish, guess what happened to them? They went to the concentration camps and they died. So they couldn't tell their story. We know some stories, Corey Ten Boom and, and Schindler's List, people that hid Jewish people, saved them. But 250,000 Jewish people did become believers. And the question is, who is good anyway? Is anybody really good to deserve heaven? No. We're all sinners. We're all lost. We all need to be born again, just like the pastor asked me. Have you been born again? I didn't know what he was talking about, but I did need to be born again. So everybody needs to uh, accept Christ. Every Jewish person needs to hear. So I'd like to close. That's a heavy thing to close on, but I want you to think about your calling. You're reaching out to unsaved people around you. You go, oh, Joe Johnson, he's so hardened, he's not going to believe. He would never be interested. He'd think I'm a holy roller if I try to preach or share the gospel. But is Joe Johnson lost? We need to, to share with him, and we need to share with the Jewish people. So thank you for listening to me this morning, sort of catching a vision for Jewish missions, and I'll close in prayer and turn back over to the pastor. Let's close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I thank you for the salvation. You said, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes for salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. May you stir our hearts for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. May we catch a burden for the people, Lord, who brought us the gospel, who brought us the Old Testament, who brought us the New Testament. And obviously, Lord, you came, took on a robe of flesh, walked among us as a Jewish Messiah, and died. And thousands of Jew Jewish people believe in you. But Lord, only about 1% today. So I pray, Lord, that you put it on the heart of individual believers here to come to know you. And there might be somebody here this morning, and the majority, I'm sure, are believers here this morning. But if there's anybody here who's like me, seeking, has questions, does not have 100% assurance that if they died, that they would go immediately into the presence of God in heaven with their sins forgiven, I pray that you speak to them this morning and have them afterwards come up and talk to me or the pastor or somebody else, a friend who brought them, and, uh, and make sure their salvation today, not leave here until they can answer that question, are they going to heaven or not? So I pray all this in Beshem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen.